Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, December 2nd, 2021. I'm John Bodhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Uh, in the last couple of days, uh, listeners have uh, been generously logging in to comment or sending, logging into commentary.org slash donate. Uh, uh, to uh, provide us with um, elemocenary support for our 501c3 organization as part of their end of year giving. Um, we are uh, deeply grateful and uh, want to encourage other listeners to follow suit, Commentary Magazine, Commentary the website, and Commentary the podcast. Uh, all depend for their existence and continued uh, prosperity and health um, from the generosity of uh, our listeners and our readers. Uh, we, we, we earn a substantial amount of money from subscriptions and advertising, but nowhere near enough to cover the expenses uh, involved with producing the magazine and making this daily podcast. Um, so if you are of a mind to try to find some place to, uh, to, to do your end of year giving, please think of us and give generously at commentary.org slash donate. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today... Uh, our, our old friend, commentary contributor, American Enterprise Institute scholar, and uh, pangendrum at the Boyden Gray something or other institute at George Mason University, Boyden Gray being an old, old friend of mine, uh, White House uh, counsel to uh, the first President Bush, uh, Adam White. Hi, Adam. How are you? What oh. is the name of the Boyden Gray School of Boyden Grayism? <laughs> it is it is the uh, the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School, and uh, thanks for having me, uh, longtime listener, first time caller. Uh, so, uh, Adam, uh, we 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 I, I turn to you as my 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 private uh, legal theorist scholar, and uh, so I was pelting you with texts and emails yesterday about the oral arguments before the Supreme Court in what is arguably the most important case the court has heard in six years, I guess, since um, since the Obergefell uh, case that uh, that ended up uh, providing a constitutional right to gay marriage. Uh, Dobbs versus the something or other in Mississippi. <laughs> Can never remember the counterparties in these in these suits. Thing, but people just are calling it Dobbs, and this is the case in which uh, the uh, a uh, a law passed by the uh, Mississippi uh, legislature uh, to uh, end abortions after the fifteenth week, except in cases of extreme medical emergency or extreme fetal abnormality, uh, has been challenged. And uh, this has now come before the Supreme Court, and um, the liberal panic is total. Uh, my, my favorite example of this, Michelle Goldberg, in a symposium in the New York Times today, said, we really need abortion because, you know, she had two kids and she wanted the two kids, but, you know, it really wreaked hell on her body. And it was really bad for her abdomen. <laughs> stomach muscles and therefore abortion must be a, a, a right and 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 you know a, a consuming human right which i thought was a, a very telling view you know sort of peek into the mindset of a certain type of pro-choice person um maybe not a not a not anything to be taken all that seriously except as a as a representative example of that but but Adam, uh, you listen to the you listen to the arguments, and without getting too deep in the weeds, or even or even uh, I think what, what let me just make one point and then ask you to sort of summarize what was going on. Um, these Supreme Court arguments, this was two hours, which is like much longer than an ordinary argument. Um, 
uh, people try to read the tea leaves of where the justices are going based on the nature and quality of their questions. And I've always thought that this was a very peculiar journalistic interpretive game because the best way to think about this is that it's like a debating society. These these are these are the people that in our in our in our lives in our public lives who are literally paid to debate questions. And uh, while some of them may be like hard ideologues, others are trying to are asking questions to test some of their own presumptions or to see how a partisan on one side or the other of, a, of, of an argument would would respond to a well-considered objection to their position. And that you can't therefore just simply tell how Amy Coney Barrett is going to rule or how Justice Kavanaugh in particular is going to rule because he because he's listening to these oral arguments and he says, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying X. Why? Just try to explain to me why that's a necessary corollary to the argument you're making that there, there, there's some difficulty there as though he's come in with a fully considered view and uh, as, as opposed to a process that begins with these arguments and will end, what is it, like seven or eight months from now when the, when the actual opinions are, are delivered? Yeah. Am I right about that? I mean, do you, do you agree with me that I think it's pretty clear how Sonia Sotomayor is going to rule since she said that this decision, if it goes away, she doesn't like, will cause a stench that will never fade around the Supreme Court. So I guess I guess she's it's pretty easily understood where she is. But yeah. I don't think you can tell from Kavanaugh's questions where he ends up on the spectrum of the continuum of do you have let some of it go? Do you let all of it go? Does it totally overturn Roe v. Wade? Does it only do a little bit? What's your take on that? Yeah, I'd say, well, in most cases, trying to read too much from the tea leaves is, is dangerous. Maybe it's a little bit, just a little bit different here because this is, you know, the, the, the biggest of all constitutional issues uh, in the court for the last 50 years. And so maybe the judges came to this case with, with, with more concrete views up front. But I'd say, having listened to the argument a couple of times, I think it clarified three things and left one thing unclear. And just really quick, what it clarified is, is first, the, the, the defenders of Roe and, and Casey, the two big abortion precedents, they really are just resting on the fact that these are precedents uh, that cannot be moved. Over and over again, they were pushed to identify specifically where the right comes from in the constitutional text and history. And they really just kept circling back to, well, this has already been decided and you can't undecide it. So that's one thing. Second thing that it clarified is, is the, the, the preemptive attacks on the court's legitimacy, which started outside of the court. But, you know, Justice Sotomayor's pretty shocking statement uh, that, that overturning Casey or even rolling back Casey and Roe a little bit would create a stench of politics. That was a pretty astonishing statement. And honestly, the only way she can really say that with a straight face is if she's totally nose blind to the stench that surrounded Casey and Roe themselves from the very beginning. Um, the thing, I clar one more thing that it clarified is that, I mean, we knew a lot of the justices were dissatisfied with Roe and Casey, and they thought this whole line about viability being the demarcation between certain aspects of state power and certain aspects of women's rights, that that was always just made up and arbitrary. Um, and what I thought was interesting was even Chief Justice Roberts was very it's, I'd be shocked based on his questions if he backed away from from undoing the viability standard. Well, we should describe what what the viability standard is, yeah. because it is a it is a particularly interestingly arbitrary dividing line between what is permissible and what is not permissible legally or constitutionally, according to the court, when you can and cannot restrict abortion yeah and i'm sorry to, to take up all the airtime uh, i'm a guest no, in your guys' house but but um but yeah so roe v wade created this trimester framework right that women would have maximum right to abortion in the first trimester of pregnancy in the third trimester they'd have minimal or no right to abortion and then in the middle and second trimester it was kind of a mix well the court walked away from that in the 1992 case planned parenthood versus casey and they replaced it with a, a standard that they called the undue burden standard, which Justice O'Connor had come up with years earlier. Uh, our friend Yuval Levin and I wrote about that a little bit this week um, in National Review. 
But as part of the undue burden standard, does a law impose an undue burden on the women's right to get an abortion? Uh, they said, well, via, the, the, the point of viability is important. The point at which a fetus achieves possible viability of life outside of the womb, at that point, the state's power and interest ratchets way up and the women's rights ratchet down. Not completely in either direction, but that is has been sort of the turning point for, for the right to abortion over the course of a pregnancy. It's totally arbitrary, and the justices really clarified that at oral argument, but it's the line that the justices picked in this 92 case. It's almost impossible to square, it is impossible to square the Mississippi statute with uh, this viability standard. Either the Mississippi statute is going to have to go or the viability standard in, the, in constitutional law is going to have well, to go. Well, because the Mississippi statute says 15 weeks. Yeah. And as far as we know, pretty much according to sort of medical science or what we know about medical science, viability really requires at least 20 weeks, although I think the law or various interpretations of the law have it at 22 weeks. But I think I think all of us know maybe one person who has had some severely premature uh, delivery of a uh, of a baby uh, at, at, at one of these unbelievably early week stages that that has actually made it to term and survived. So but I don't think that there has been any case in which that has been the case uh, earlier than 20 or 21 weeks. And so by setting it at 15, Mississippi was deliberately aiming at the viability standard, hoping to create this Supreme Court challenge to Casey, which was a which was an emendation of the 1992 emendation of Roe, which was decided in 73 or 72. I can't remember which. Yeah, 73. Right. So. Um, so that that's its purpose, right? It's part the purpose of the statute was to lead to yesterday was to lead to this case. I'm sure there were a lot of purposes. Well, but, yeah, but but, but I just mean political as a as a naked political matter. Yeah, by 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 setting a new a new week term uh, that is itself arbitrary, because yeah. it could be twelve weeks, could be fourteen weeks. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know. And as, anyway. the justice, as the justice has made clear, legislatures are in the business of making arbitrary judgments between competing values. It's not usually the work of the court. Um, but since the, the, the Mississippi statute is just a 15-week statute, it doesn't prohibit abortion altogether, that sort of points to the last issue, and it's the thing that's left unclear after oral argument, which is how far does the court actually have to go in this case? And you saw a number of the justices, especially the chief justice, but a number of the justices sort of asking out loud, how far do we need to go to decide this case? Uh, you know, uh, the, the extremes would be uphold Roe and Casey altogether, renounce Roe and Casey altogether. They don't really need to renounce Roe and Casey altogether if they want to affirm the Mississippi statute. They could say, we're just saying that, that, that will allow, the constitution allows states to regulate abortion after the 15th week. They could go much further and say there's no right to, to abortion except possibly in cases where the mother's life is in danger. Um, and the question is where in the middle would they settle? And for what it's worth, just one last thing, they don't need to announce that there's no right to abortion even when the woman's life is in danger. I, I'd be astonished if they preemptively announced that in this case. So it is a judgment call about where in the middle they'll line up. And you can see a really interesting breakdown of opinions. In Casey, there was sort of three, three, three opinions, a dissent, a, a concurrence, and a, an opinion in the middle. It's possible here we could see four or five opinions, depending on whether, say, Chief Justice Roberts and Kavanaugh agree. They might want to write their own opinions. Justice Barrett, any of them might want to write their own opinion. And so we should be prepared for a big split on this prudential question of how far to go in rolling back uh, a precedent. Didn't so it, it's I agree with that assessment. I think that's right. And I think there will probably be lots, lots of weird iterations of, you know, uh, when this opinion comes down in, in June. But I'm wondering what you might. Uh, I always read the vibe that was created um, as a kind of uh, the, way of avoiding the ethical heart of the abortion debate, which is uh, 
does life begin at conception? So viability is actually a sliding scale. And we've seen it just in the last 10 years move from, you know, 24 to 22 to 21 weeks. And, and we could assume with technology and, and artificial womb type technology that's, that's being researched that that might happen, might even be pushed further into the first trimester. But I'm curious what, from what you heard in the oral arguments, what about this issue of when life begins? Because the issue of what rights a, a child has in utero hinges has always hinged on that question, right? When, when are they, when does the state have an interest in protecting human life? When does that interest begin? When do those rights begin? And, and I didn't, from what I, I didn't listen to the entire argument, but from what I read, that question is always the one that they're most strenuously trying to avoid answering. I think everybody tries to avoid answering it here, at least everybody involved in this case, the, the advocates for abortion rights certainly didn't want to get into that. Um, but even on the among the justices, say Justice Kavanaugh, he said some believe that there's a total right to abortion. Some believe that life begins at conception and the constitutional right to life begins at conception. The job of the court should be neutral and to neutral be neutral by leaving this to legislatures to decide. So nobody really wants to get into this. There is sort of a budding movement of some legal scholars and philosophers out of Princeton and Notre Dame and elsewhere who are pushing. Um, very hard in the other direction saying, no, life begins at conception, the right to life begins at conception, and therefore the Constitution prohibits abortion altogether. Um, but that that really didn't enter at all into this case, except maybe to kind of, a, some advocates would try to expand the Overton window, so to speak. I, it, this is an interesting, you know, conundrum, and it's like going back to the, you know, I'm almost 40 years out of college, so it's like going back to the dorm room for one of these late night you know, late night philosophical debates on first first things. But um, when you talk about this question of of, you know, the uh, the rights of women versus the rights of the unborn, uh, the general disposition of the pro-choice movement has been to deny the idea that the unborn have rights. And that to deny essentially, you know, what with the term person to deny personhood to the unborn, uh, because once you accept the theoretical notion that uh, a fetus is uh, has a beating heart, can feel pain, uh, and is not simply a clump of cells, then you do have this sort of a collision um and it's the only thing like it that is the key thing about abortion well, justice sotomayor made the, made a very explicit argument against what you're alleging yesterday uh insofar as fetal pain is not indicative of in her view of anything approaching um sentience i suppose i have no idea what her standard is but she made a bizarre point about uh post-mortem reflexes uh, as being indicative of uh, of a similar sort of condition, and that therefore pain isn't a threshold that we should use as any sort of legal standard for for life. Right. Well, but I mean, again, even if you don't say pain is the only standard, right? Um, and you could even say that pain, uh, if, if you wanted to sort of like uh, play this at a very high level, you could say that 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 uh, that that pain is uh, is dirty pool as a as a as a discussion point because you simply then associate the notion that you're sort of you know you're you're torturing a baby that you sort of pl plant that and and so how do you have a how do you argue past that point a lot of people that we know wouldn't that's where it would stop but if but, but if you but if you but that doesn't that doesn't deal with the fact that there's a beating heart that if that if in most of these cases there was no intervention, this, this creature or whatever you want to call it that is inside a woman's body, except in 25% of the cases in which there is a spontaneous miscarriage, this creature will develop full term and then emerge as a, as, as a person. And that is a, that, and, and so avoiding that is central to the pro-choice case and simply saying uh, you know, uh, and this is just a very, very strange thing because um, all anyone ever wants to talk about, it, and they said this, and Sotomayor said it, and I think Breyer said it is, this is all fundamentally a religious view. We have to be silent in terms of religion. But 
uh, and I do believe that, you know, obviously the idea that life begins at conception, which is, by the way, not the Jewish frame uh, in which we, 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 we think about this, though uh, Judaism is not pro-abortion, unlike uh, many Jewish liberals, uh, you know, conception of it. Um, but, but that, but yeah, go ahead. The, the, the pro-choice movement may be um, largely absolutist. Uh, in, in this question about uh, the, the 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 fetus having no lot no rights, but Roe, which they desperately want to hang on to, um, is not. I mean uh, that that that's why the viability standard, arbitrary as it is, exists. Well, well, Adam, as you said, that there's a kind of sliding scale that as the fetus ages, it sort of accrues rights. I don't know how else you would describe it. I mean, in other words, that there is a kind of a right to abortion into the ninth month in extreme cases, as long as you can claim the health of the mother or whatever. And that's how we have partial birth abortion. But that but that it becomes the woman's right to abortion becomes, you know, ineffably sort of less absolute as time goes on, which, of course, is similarly a very weird right standard. Like our, our rights, you know, we, we have some limitations on our, on our human rights based in periods of emergency or in, you know, when they have to be suspended in order to, you know, because there's been a terrorist attack or, or there's been a pandemic or something like that. Some of our rights can be suspended, but they're not generally, it's not generally thought that you, you, you get to operate your rights on a sliding scale based on, you know, based on a, a time frame. It, it is very strange. It's almost like at, at, at viability, the left gives um, babies tenure, right? They, they can still be um, aborted after that, but only for really, really serious reasons. Um, and, and this was sort of, a, this was explored at oral argument. The number of the conservative justices kept bringing the advocates back to say, you, know, you keep arguing this case in terms of women's rights and women's interests. The viability of the baby has nothing to do with that. Right. You've 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 mapped this legal standard on that is is really significantly divorced from the the rights that you're talking about. And and of course, the answer is, well, it's because implicitly even the existing Roe and Casey frameworks do balance competing rights and interests. But in trying to maintain Roe and Casey, the left has tried, even with a standard that's called undue burden. I mean, it's the most legislative standard of all. They've tried to focus almost exclusively in terms of, of the rights and interests of women. Um, and it's, it's, it's um, it, I'd just say on the, the weirdness with which they approach the issue of the fetus and the unborn baby, um, we often hear on the left, the dangers of othering people, right? Treating certain kinds of people as something other than human so that we don't have to grapple with the, the ramifications of their equal humanity. And this is just the quintessential example of othering. It's not to say that the unborn baby isn't in significantly different circumstances or that the mother bearing the baby isn't in extraordinary circumstances herself. Um, but it is, I, I think, the quintessential othering of the, of the unborn baby precisely to avoid the hard choices of abortion law. That's, I mean, that's and, uh, uh, sorry. I just said culturally that the best example we have of that came yesterday from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Twitter feed, where she talked about if, you know, if, if this decision goes the wrong way, then women will be uh, engaged in having to do forced birth. And then she, of course, thought that Kavanaugh should recuse himself, which is ridiculous. There were activists outside of the court yesterday uh, claiming to be taking abortion pills and celebrating their abortions. And we, I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast. That is not where most Americans live, whether they're pro-choice or pro-life, that sort of weird celebratory in your face, you know, kind of activity is actually very bad for their side, even though they don't appear to realize it. Well, it's only I mean, I don't want to read the minds of people when they when they have their arguments, but there is a there is a high degree of defensiveness and bad faith in that kind of thing, which is to say. All things being equal, the logic of the pro-choice position is that no woman should be compelled to give birth if she chooses not to give birth. That doesn't mean that there is anything positive about the exercise of that right. Uh, um, I mean, in, in, in a way, you could then analogize this to the Second Amendment if you wanted to, 
if you were sort of like a person who accepted that the Second Amendment provided a right to own a gun, but you disliked or disapproved of gun ownership, what you could say is you have this right, but that doesn't mean that the exercise of it is praiseworthy. And I think that's where the American people are, like a vast majority of the American people are, which is that they have come to accept this as a kind of um, reality, but they are uncomfortable with it. And, and, and they're uncomfortable with the exercise of it. And it, based on my experience, I'm not a woman and all of that, but uh, I know, you know, people who have in themselves exercised the right to abortion are uncomfortable with the fact that they exercised it. Though they did so and their lives have gone on in a different way and it's not, some people are haunted by it. They may not even be haunted by it, but the, but the, but the, this weird turn in which you are to celebrate the exercise of this right um, is very alienating as a as a as a as a public matter. So when they when 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 you hear the pro-choice side saying this is terrible for the legitimacy of the court because the American people support the right to abortion, they do polls tell us. They also tell us that they want many restrictions on the right to abortion and that those restrictions are themselves an expression of their discomfort with and distaste for the exercise of this right. And so when you have radical liberals praising themselves for doing this, Sonia Sotomayor is worried about the stench on the court from, from, a, from a decision she doesn't like. This is the stench that already exists around the pro-choice movement that helps ballast the discomfort that, the, that, that, that ordinary Americans have with abortion. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very, it's the, it's the ultimate complicated issue, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a state of being, being a pregnant woman or being a fetus. This is the most unique and unusual aspect of, of, of existence. There is nothing like it. There is nothing to analogize it to. It is the ultimate mystery of existence, whether you are religious or not. And that's what, why I wanted to bring up this attack that you can only think this way in ter- as, as, as a matter of religion, which is if you think through it for like 20 seconds is kind of demented because as I say, the logic of pregnancy is that all things being equal, that pregnancy will lead to a birth. And therefore from conception, you have incipient life or, or, or life that, you know, absent, either the intervention of nature that ends up miscarrying it or something else or an accident or, you know, whatever, a horrible tragedy like, a uh, you know, the, um, the umbilical cord wrapping around the fetuses or something, will end up with a, with a living baby. That's not a religious view. That is, that, that is, that is just simple, you know, elementary... Well- fact. And let me, let me just chime in to say as someone who I, I had, uh, I had carried twins to term and I, because if you have twins, you're considered high risk pregnancy automatically. So you're, you're given scans very early, earlier than most um, uh, pregnancies. And it, you don't have to be religious to be, to see them, see babies uh, on the screen, moving, hearts beating. You don't have to be religious. You just have to be an empathetic, normal human being seeing that and thinking that's my child. And you, you know, you see the babies all the time. You feel the babies moving. If you're, if you're the one carrying them, um, it, it is a, it's a transformative experience in many ways. And the fact that someone like Michelle Goldberg would reduce it to, you know, this, the state of her abs um, is is kind of horrifying, but that it speaks to the kind of hyper individualistic uh, understanding of autonomy versus community um, that I think a, a certain uh, part of the elite left uh, takes for granted. And these cases challenge that notion as much as they challenge their understanding of rights. The other thing I'll say that was interesting, and, and Adam, your point about othering is is really key. Um, I also noticed a lot of talk about women suddenly again on the left. I didn't hear anyone discussing birthing people. I didn't talk, hear anyone saying chest feeders. So I, I, it's kind of interesting to me that this is another issue where the left 
doesn't have the courage of its convictions when it comes to talking about women, women, biological women and their needs and their rights. Christine, Anna, uh, to, oh, to go your, ahead, Abe, go ahead. To your, to your other point, um, I think part of why the, the left is in such a panic now also is that this comes at the sort of height of a anti-motherhood campaign or, you know, uh, why it's great not to have kids, uh, why I don't regret it, why, why having kids is selfish, why, you know, uh, um, there, there is so much of that sentiment in the air right now. And this, this, this really coincides with that. Adam, in your piece that you wrote with, with Yuval Levin uh, on, on the National Review site, you, you go into a lot of what Christine just sort of alluded to, that, um, that uh, there, is a, there is a sustained liberal critique of the conservative, politically conservative or, or partisanly Republican, let's say, uh, view on abortion that speaks to, if you really want to be serious about this, speaks to, if, if you agree that uh, this is a radical autonomy issue versus community, uh, one of the places in which the right has completely failed is to accept the logic of that and then do things and act in ways that are that conform with the with the fact that if you're going to believe that there should be no abortion that this then uh, imposes pretty significant social changes on a on a society that has gone radically in the direction of personal autonomy at the expense of everything else yeah, that, that's the point Yuval and I were trying to get across. I mean, the, the irony of, of the, the Supreme Court 30 years ago seizing upon this term undue burden. I mean, we've, we've been talking about it for 30 years, but I mean, when you think, I, I don't think we've ever really thought about how important a theme that is, right? Undue burden, the term undue burden implies that there are due burdens, right? And due burdens both on, 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 on women um, who society um, expects uh, to carry their babies to term, but also do burdens on all of us. And, and so the, the point that you just highlighted, the need for, for conservatives, especially, I mean, all, all Americans, but especially conservatives, to think about the, the abortion debates, not just as a, a fight over Roe v. Wade, but a fight over to, to defend life. And that, that fight requires not just the prevention of the taking of life, but the fostering of, of, a, of societal bonds that will support life. And so ultimately the, the, the due burdens aren't just on, the, on, on mothers, they're, they're on all of us, right? Beginning with family, but outward to society. I mean, you don't wanna take it so far that we, we all sound like we're saying it takes a village to raise a child, um, but it, in, in some ways it does. And I just note the irony here, just a few days ago in The Guardian, Jill Lepore had a long, way, way too long piece about really, Jill Lepore wrote too long. I can't yeah. believe it. Yeah, and the piece was called um, "Is Society Coming Apart?" and and the answer is well, yes, but because of Thatcher and Reagan and all the conservatives. And I just I I, I love the irony of that of her article um, coming out just days before the Dobbs argument because this really is the the the, the clearest case where the the sort of anti-society, anti-community anti-communal bonds arguments are clearest on the left. And I think the key is for the right, not to sort of propose an atomization of their own, but rather to, to, to say, no, we are all in this together and that we are not just against abortion, but we really are for life. Right. So, you know, the, the, there, there are several thinkers who uh, on the pro-choice side who have thought very deeply about this on, you know, conservatives, I mean, Ramesh Panuru and Ross Douthat in particular, who say that there are things that need to happen in public policy that conservatives are loath to support, largely having to do with government action to support this idea of community. Um, since the Republican conservative worldview tends to be more, um, let's say, libertarian. Uh, these can be very difficult for people to swallow. On the other hand, uh, we have 60, 70, 80% of people asked about in the, the, the Build Back Better bill stuff, asked in theory, should, the, you know, should there be some kind of unlimited right to childcare, right? 
Um, and there's a reason that there's an idea that there should be an unlimited right to childcare, which isn't, which isn't just people just want free stuff. It is that there is something about the way that we are dealing with uh, early childhood uh, and, and the demands of life and all of that that is skewed in the United States. And so the liberal idea is, well, you know, we'll, we'll, provide, a, we'll, we'll, we'll provide this providing that every everything else goes the way we want it so the so the 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 daycare is unionized and it doesn't take place in churches and it's not this and it's not that right so on the one hand they get to the left or they get to they 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 achieve popular support in some theoretical sense for the idea that we are all in this together and that a, a healthy society uh has an interest in helping to make sure that children are raised properly. And on the other hand, the right has completely absented itself from the question of what that would mean in practice. Uh, and that their solutions are often, are, are, uh, you know, particularly in relation to this refusing the subsidy for, for religious institutions where I think half of American childcare takes place. Um, represents a represents a you know a, a, a political opportunity for republicans not just to say oh you just want to spend too much money but the way you want to spend money is in fact the opposite of life affirming it is the opposite of helpful and it is the opposite of the kind of community that people want but there's they a, but yeah go ahead Christine. well i was gonna say to, to, to add to that there's also uh, i mean for the entrepreneurial free market type conservatives there's huge numbers of missed opportunities. Uh, if we can have a system where, where people can form, for example, co-op type arrangements for childcare in their local communities, very local, organically developed things, but you still need vetting mechanisms. You still need, if you're going to hire someone as a group to watch the kids, you need to find have a way to do a background checks. There are all these sort of uh, bureaucratic issues with regard to childcare that a lot of people don't understand uh, could be solved at a much more local level if we allowed more innovation entrepreneurship in those areas. And it's why the top-down union sanctioned solutions aren't appealing to people because not everybody wants to warehouse their kid in a massive union run you know, facility. They want the grandma down the street who they grew up as having as their babysitter watch their kids a few hours a week, but they want to make sure that that's a safe environment and follows all the kind Kind of things we know to be safe, especially for very young children. So I have a friend, I have a friend who started a home daycare business in Maryland and just the odyssey of watching her get that business to a point where it could thrive was all about the bureaucratic hassle. And she had to call upon a lot of people who knew how to do that, but there are opportunities there for entrepreneurs as well. Noah, as the, as the, as the most libertarian of the five of us uh, in this conversation, is there anything that we've been talking about here that 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 is kind of that rankles no by no means uh okay. a this isn't generally my subject uh or or generally area of interest uh so i've been de deferring to the experts uh with vested interests in the subject for for most of this podcast so excuse my absence but <clears throat> generally my assumption here is that uh as you've you said i think yesterday john that the the field is dominated by activists uh, with a particularly heightened understanding of the legal issues, the moral issues, the political issues around this on both sides of the matter, uh, which is utterly unreflective of the very nuanced and confused position of the general public and the assumption that in the event that this decision goes one way or another, and most likely it splits, in my view, it sort of splits the baby, maybe eviscerates Casey, but maintains most of Roe, um, that it will be so confusing for the general public and so nuanced in ways that I don't think the the cable news audience really appreciates that the that the American public does understand nuance does accept, um, yeah, yeah, you know, half a loaf at times in ways that the activist class doesn't appreciate and condescends about um, that. There's no real way to understand what the political impact is going to be. Some I, I saw uh, some some analysis from Amy Walter, who I like quite a bit, and think she's a very uh, astute political and, and analyst suggesting that, you know, wh wherever this decision goes in 2022, it will dominate the election year. I, I would be shocked, frankly shocked, um, because I, I, I would anticipate that a lot of the assumptions around how this is going to go will be baked in to the, to the political debate that year. And, you know, barring many events that have yet to occur that we can't foresee, uh, the, 
the issues sets that will dominate that year are already upon us. Um, they're economic and they're pandemic related. So I think a lot of people are overestimating the extent to which this decision, one way or the other, will come to dominate next year's midterm politics. I do think that it will be a fundraising bonanza. But that fundraising bonanza can go both ways. But you're talking about the activists, and it will go both ways. You're talking about the activist class, the really engaged donor class, not the voters who make or break majorities. Well, but that's interesting because that, then that goes to this question of whether, you know, you, you know, the Democratic Party raise, outraises the Republican Party by $200 million because they uh, they reach out to people and say, you see, we're right. They're 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 destroying our rights and freedoms. And and, you know, uh, the uh, authoritarian state, uh, the handmaid's tale is upon us. And then the question is, will that two hundred million dollars matter? Um and my assumption is it really won't, because where it will matter, as I think you're saying about baking in the cake, most of the places that it will matter um, are already lined up on one side or the other. Because pro-life activists issue. assume that everybody is, is a universalist on their issue and nobody supports exceptions, uh, which they do. And the pro-choice side sort of assumes that everybody is going to go, go to the mattresses with the kind of vehemence that they will bring to the fight, which they simply will not, um, because they're of mixed views on the issue, as you said as well. Uh, the activist class does not, on few issues, does the activist class not represent the public as much as they do in the abortion debate? I think you do the pro-life side a bit of an injustice. And here, here's, here's why, just historically. So Roe uh, becomes you know, constitutional writ in 1973. Uh, Casey is the first serious challenge to Roe, which is 19 years later, right? Is it 19? Oh, so it's almost 20 years later. Until that challenge, it was really not clear whether a challenge, whether whether Roe would survive the challenge, because almost everybody outside of the most uh, sort of, um, what would you call it? I don't know, but... Uh, Almost everybody, certainly everybody on the right, everybody who was even sort of moderately constitutionally minded, believed that Roe was an abomination as a matter of constitutional law, and that it could simply be overturned as a matter of constitutional law. There are no penumbras and emanations. There is no such thing. The Constitution can't be read to do anything. Once you start down that road, you know, we're, we're going to be destroyed. Roe has to go, send it back to the states let them adjudicate it. And then Casey came down. And so that everything was frozen. There, there was no, the whole question was, what would the court do once it had a case that it could, it could actually just overturn Roe? And then the fights would begin in the states. And so the pro-life side was very absolutist. The pro-choice side was very absolutist. And then Casey came down and the pro-life movement turned on a dime and said, okay, abortion is here to stay. What can we do to limit the number of abortions since we believe that abortion is murder? We can't simply go down this rejectionist path. That path has now ended for us. This will not be, and again, it's true, right? It's like basically another 20 years, 30 years later that there is now a significant challenge. And so that's when they started, the pro-life movement started looking at things like parental consent laws, uh, you know, um, all kinds of different things uh, to limit the number of abortions that we would be performed. And then in the last two or three years, they really started getting inventive, right? They went to state legislatures, they got various restrictions in place and all of that. And then you got this Mississippi law and then you got this Texas law. Right. Both of which are incredibly, in in some ways, incredibly inventive and provocative ways of challenging the existing consensus because the limitations doctrine or the limitations effect had kind of reached its logical limit. Um, But I think that, like, for 30 years, uh, the pro life movement did what it could with the hand that it was dealt in a very a pragmatic, realistic way that took account of an advantage of 
public discomfort with abortion to say, let's just make sure that you can't do it here. Let's 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 not make it so easy for someone to do this. And let's try to express some statewide discomfort with it. Um, and that turned out to be very successful everywhere outside the very bluest of, of, of states. Now we're in a different world. But um, the absolutism, absolutism on the uh, on the on the pro-life side was was not the order of the day until relatively recently. And I wanted to ask Adam, um, very interesting piece in the Federalist by Natcon Rachel Bovard yesterday, that basically, so Sonia Sotomayor said there's going to be a stench on the court forever, and Rachel Bovard said if like this warning shot that intended to go onto Kavanaugh's and Barrett's desks, right? If they don't vote to overturn both Casey and Roe, the Federalist Society must be destroyed. Literally, that's the piece. The piece is the entire conservative legal movement is corrupted and evil and must be destroyed and supplanted by something else. Now, I don't know what that means practically, but uh, what do you what do you make of this radical? You know, this it's all part of the general radicalization of the right in the form of the natcons and the integralists and all of that. But um, uh, they're trying to scare Barrett and Kavanaugh into doing, you know, uh, with the threat of somehow destroying the Federalist Society, whatever that means. I mean, this is this is sort of like the 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 way that both the right and the left tried to work. Chief Justice Roberts over the last 10 years. And I'll be honest, I've never quite bought the narrative that Roberts just sort of swung in the wind among political forces. Um, but now it's being expanded to the whole court, all the justices basically giving, like you said, Barrett and Kavanaugh, the, the Roberts treatment. I don't, I, I, I've seen arguments to that effect that this, if, if the court doesn't renounce Roe, it's the end of the conservative legal movement. I, I totally disagree with that. I, I, maybe they're saying that now to work the refs, but let's face it, if the court rules in favor of Mississippi and substantially rolls back Roe and Casey without getting rid of them altogether, conservative activists are going to do a victory lap. And President Trump will probably tweet something like, I aborted Roe or something, right? They will, they will, they will celebrate the, their victory and they will try to maximize it. Um, yeah, if the court actually struck down the Mississippi statute, then then people declared a a, um, a a loss. But any victory for Mississippi here is going to be the most significant Supreme Court victory on the pro life side in fifty years, and I just can't imagine people um, treating it as a as a loss, except for people who might raise funds off of it. Yeah, and it, it's also sort of it, it's it's counterintuitive for them to say that it all has to be about road. This is the mistake that's been made on both sides by the activist class on both sides. Right. The conservative legal movement has done a lot more than just deal with abortion. It's dealt with the administrative state. It, I mean, there there's a big affirmative action case coming in uh, through the pipeline. So the idea that it, that there are these li it, the, the litmus test, remember, this is always the litmus test for nominees, too. It's a mistake because it fails to account for first of all, for how most Americans feel about a range of issues, but it also fails to account for the successes of the conservative legal movement, which has been about far more than abortion. Okay, but th but this is this is an expansion of a return to uh, an idea that was prevalent or not exact prevalent is not the right word, but was floated in the mid 90s after the Casey decision in the pages of First Things, which is now itself, you know, 25 years later, kind of a center of this rising neo-integralism, let's say, where, where uh, Richard John Newhouse and First Things proposed that the American regime was illegitimate because it had become part of this culture of death, because abortion had, had been allowed to remain legal. Um, and we had spent 20 years making this argument that it shouldn't be, and we lost. Uh, the regime was now an immoral regime. America was an immoral country at root and at, at heart sounds like the 1619 project right i mean this is kind of not original sin but kind of like the the sin of of of, of contemporary liberalism destroying our foundation and that's just the argument that rachel bovard is is making now or returning to uh with this you know general i think deranged presumption that this very minority view 
can somehow win if you just like fight you, you can win like we're losing and you see we lost this too so now we'll what we need to do is destroy everybody who is sort of nominally on our side because they're worse than the right. liberals who want you should take that 1619 analogy to its logical conclusion because it's absolutely right the extent to which the national conservative right has adopted and become an extension of of the political tactics of the left um they view the left has viewed the bench as a super legislature they have viewed appointments to the federal uh federal uh judiciary as transactional relationships we give you this we get this um it is to turns textualism on its head which was always the argument that the federalist society advanced that these justices are not there to advance political objectives they are there to represent the original understanding and meaning of the constitution and for the left nothing ever goes far enough and for the natcons you can't, nothing goes far enough everything, well, that would be to everything ease is a compromise the, yeah and that would be to relieve the psychological psychologically comforting and paralyzing in my view um persecution complex that animates their every uh, political impulse. Uh, our friend Ilya Shapiro, um, in, a, in, a, in an interview with the Dispatch, a piece that where Adam has also interviewed, uh, proposes that uh, Adam's, you know, the sort of split the baby thing will be worse uh, than, than, than a clean hit on Roe or Casey or like a clean break. Because he says, um, this is sort of interesting, if they replace what they're going to say is a hard to apply undue burden standard with something else that's also hard to apply, inscrutable, how is that an improvement? You'd have everyone mad at you rather than just half the people. Adam, what do you, what do you make of that uh, you know, analysis? Yeah, so Because I think it's the most likely thing to happen. I think we're all in agreement that some replacement of undue burden with, you know, schmundu schmurden a phrase that, you know, has, I know you and you've all like want to parse, Talmudically parse the meaning of the phrase undue burden, but it actually doesn't mean anything. In fact, that's the reason that you use it is to create a phrase that can be adopted to any spit, any circumstance, but go ahead. Well, I agree with Ilya that if the court were to sit down on a blank slate and write the new rules for abortion, uh, it would make no sense to say, here's our undue burden test, and it's different from the old undue burden test. I totally agree with that. But I think it's important to step back and see what is it that the court actually does when it decides cases, right? In here, it's not operating on a blank slate. There's a body of precedent. And the task for the court here, if, it's, if it upholds the Mississippi statute, is deciding how much it actually needs to say to decide the case, right? And so they don't need to write the new code of abortion law here. They might just need to, to decide how much they're going to say about rolling things back, right? Viability is gone. We don't need to decide more than that for this case. I'm sure justices have always varied on how on, on their temperament on this. Um, and some justice and Justice Scalia wrote a great article years ago called the rule of law is a law of rules. And the point being the job of the court is to declare the broadest sustainable rule so that everybody else knows what the rule is. Um, but I don't see that sentiment here with the court. And I'm sympathetic to those on the court, on, on, on the conservatives who would say viability has to go, but we don't need to decide today whether there's a right to abort um, when the, the mother's life is in danger. Like they just don't need to decide that for this case. And I'd be shocked if they did. So uh, I think you think, and I guess Noah, th everybody here thinks that the most likely outcome is some kind of six, three, five, four decision with seven semi, -concur he concurs in part and he dissents in part. And then this one, you know, signs on to this one's half concurrence and there'll be, there'll be like five, six, seven opinions and, uh, and, and the initial reporting on what is found will be wrong. <laughs> which is exactly what happened in Obamacare, where, where nobody really understood what, what the hell the decision was. But um, I do think that, uh, to, just to finish up on this uh, question of uh, playing the refs, so uh, Sotomayor is like, we are going to destroy the, uh, the credibility of this institution as a, you know, uh, for all time. Um. And so that's a way of like saying to Roberts, do something, do, you know, we, we succeeded, she's saying, in making and affecting you in this way when uh, the, 
when the Obamacare Act was before us and kind of turning you uh, from a from a, an opponent of it to a supporter of it, let's say, or supporter of its constitutionality because of the institutional threat that was posed by the idea that basically liberals were going to say that the court was, you know, destroyed. Um, can you play that hand? It's like, you know, it's really like Daffy Duck and Bugs. I mean, can you play that hand with with Roberts more than once? I know, I know Kavanaugh and Barrett are also, you know, like institutionalists. I don't understand how just because polls say that people want abortion to be a right, that's a institutionalist therefore supposed to like read the uh, read the read the polls. I mean, Mr. Dooley said the Supreme Court follows the election returns. We're not even talking about election returns here. We're talking about like the Pew Center polling. Well, as, as Abe said, there's no satisfying these people. And Chief Justice Roberts surely knows that in his case, too. The other thing I'd look to, though, is keep in mind, Chief Justice Roberts, who is a student of the chief justices who preceded him, and he's studied and written and or spoken on them. He clerked for William Rehnquist, who dissented in Casey. And Rehnquist and the other dissenters in Casey understood and, and wrote that there was political pressure on all sides of this case, and that it's impossible to say that ruling one way is political, but ruling the other way isn't. Uh, and I just, I, I was not surprised to see Roberts um, uh, move in, in a direction of being willing to, to uphold the statute. Um, I would be surprised, actually, if, if, he, actually, if he took a, a stance dramatically different from Rehnquist's leadership of the court through the, the Casey years. Uh, historically, also, you know, this notion that, oh, there'll be a stench forever. Well, you know, the Warren court and it's and the Burger court that succeeded it, uh, they, you know, announced that uh, capital punishment was unconstitutional. They declared this, uh, you know, unbridled constitutional right to abortion, all of that. A lot of people in the United States believed that the Supreme Court had gone, you know, they 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 vetoed prayer in the schools. They created the tripartite. Lemon v. Kurtzman standard. They did this. They did that. They did the other thing. Half the country thought that the Supreme Court, you know, had gone crazy and was illegitimate from like 1962 to like 1980. And it doesn't seem to me that the court's reputation as a, you know, historically has suffered. If anything, the court is vastly more powerful than it ever has been before, uh, and, you know, plays this massive role in our public life as some kind of adjudicator, a final adjudicator of controversies, which was never what it was intended to be. That is what the legislature is supposed to be. Um, so I, I think it's a weird argument that Sotomayor is making that like, oh, you know, we're not going to like you anymore. We liberals and therefore you're going to be illegitimate. Well, we already went through that. You know, half the you know conservatives thought the Supreme Court was illegitimate in the 1970s and you know what it's still there it's still going and it's and what it does still is you know is is writ once it's once it's declared they, they said the same thing after bush v gore too remember yeah they've that been was, saying that, that forever was, yeah, we yeah. have we just went through a, a court packing commission which is expressly designed as a threat against its which current, adam was on right how right, was that precisely. adam it, it's still going actually oh okay so you can't uh you i'm sorry you uh, you know this is like skull and bones. Once you mention it, you have to leave the room. Can who I just say that? The, the, who doesn't love a 36 person group project? <laughs> it's like building a camel. Um, the, I will say my personal opinion, and not just because I have Luddite tendencies, which you all know well of, is that as long as they keep cameras out of the Supreme Court, it will continue to be the most uh, respected body of our <laughs> government because no one has any incentive to play to the cameras in, during arguments, during questioning et cetera, et cetera. I think, I think the tape recording or releasing the tape recordings is like the perfect solution because, you know, I don't like what Sotomayor said and I don't like this and I don't like that. Like this is, this is argumentation and debate at a very, very high level in our public life that we are now privy to. And thank God there is some of it given the destructively clownish nature of the public debates that go on in our legislatures, that at least we're now getting these tapes out in which you see very serious people having very serious conversations about the most serious topics on earth. Uh, 
in a remarkably sophisticated and deep way, whether you want to think they're evil or terrible or not, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a gift. And maybe, maybe this is the perfect solution instead of having cameras. So we don't, you know, we don't see having people then, you know, reading facial expressions or having, you know, like graphology, you know, having, having those things where, you know, they'll be, have a camera on, on, on Thomas. And you're like, what is he doing? What's he thinking? I mean, here is facial expert, you know, Dr. Phyllis, you know, Schmedlap uh, to tell you that when he raises his eyebrow, that obviously means that he is going to vote X way or Y way. It's like the Supreme Court, but with a podcast. It is a podcast. The Supreme Court should have. That's right. And, you know, it's interesting because this podcast is now almost as long as the two hour uh, debate that was released yesterday. Adam White, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your 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 insights. Um and uh, and for and for uh, putting up with us uh, and for Abe Noah and Christina I'm John Pod Horitz, keep the candle burning. <laughs>